ask all these things in your holy name. Amen. We'll be looking at uh, the main passage this morning will be Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, a passage that um, if you have attended church for any length of time, have probably heard taught before. Um, My hope and goal will be to teach it maybe in a a light of a a little bit different uh, view as we look a lot at the historical context of what the author of Luke was trying to convey as he captured Jesus's words. The the title of this passage can really be two. It can either be the father of the gospel, that can be the title, or it could be the scandal of grace. The father of the gospel, the reason I picked this passage when Todd asked me on Thursday if I would step in for him, because we just looked in our series looking at the Lord's Prayer at the word father. And the Lord's Prayer has always held a special place for me. Uh, when the disciples go to Jesus in earnestness and say, Jesus, teach us as our teacher how to pray, there are all kinds of titles that Jesus could have instructed his disciples to start the prayer with. He could have given them Elohim, he could have given them Adonai, he could have given them Yahweh, Jehovah, and yet he gives them this word, Father. And I see that for me, in my understanding of how the gospel is from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and I take it to see that the progress of redemption is not just that we would come to God as Lord or Redeemer or Savior, but ultimately the end of salvation, the goal was adoption. And so that's what we see. And so I felt it appropriate to look at a passage this morning that took a little bit deeper dive into this idea of Father. And so before we go into Luke 15, 11, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time, we need to look at the context of the content that we're about to look at. So as I read in verses 15, 1 through 3, Jesus is setting the stage, and there's sinners and tax collectors that are surrounding him, and then far off, still within earshot, but separate from, are these Pharisees and scribes, the religious, they would have been the pastors, the theologians of the day. And it's interesting, um, we often approach this as if Jesus is teaching these parables to those that are near him, but the context is actually he's teaching these parables to the Pharisees. Now, obviously, those that were closer than the sinners and tax collectors are there, but his primary audience was to those that were away. Charles Dickens, if you're familiar with that name, called this uh, story of the prodigal son the greatest short story ever told, which I feel like is high praise for that. And so we see there's three stories that Jesus tells within this chapter. The first is the story of a man who loses a sheep. Man loses a sheep, he leaves 99, goes and retrieves the one. Once he finds the one, he gathers all those around him in celebration, saying this one that was, that was lost is now found. And then we see in verses 8 this other parable that he gives, the parable of the lost coin. So there's a woman who has these 10 coins, 10, 10 times the daily wage. She loses one, scours around the entire house until she finds it. When she does, invites others over and invites them to rejoice. And in both instances, we see the first is lost property, right? There's a sheep, livestock. The second is lost profit. But in both instances, neither of the thing that are lost are able to go and find their owner. One is inanimate, the coin, and sheep, I don't know if you know this, are notorious for wandering off. What always reminds me of that hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, right? And so in both instances, 
there's this example that we'll also see starting in verse 11 where the things that are lost cannot and will not in and of themselves be found. They must be sought after. But what we're really going to try to dive into and look at this morning is not just the content of the story in the context that we would understand it in today, but what the Pharisees would have heard. Because when we understand this story in context, it really is pretty scandalous. Which for me is a good reminder, the real gospel is pretty ridiculous if you think about it. And when we approach the gospel and there's some sense of us that, that we feel like we can accomplish something, and we get away from the, the how, how um, beyond understanding and how crazy good it really is to understand the gospel, when we think there's some element we bring to it, we're getting farther and farther away from the gospel. So my hope, my prayer as I've studied, is that this will be a time of awe for us this morning. So we're going to pick up Luke 15, verses 11 through 14 is where we'll start. Because of the way the passage is taught, there won't be a typical kind of three-point summary kind of thing. I'm going to kind of teach it as it is taught here as a story. So Luke 15, verse 11. So the Pharisees have already heard these other two parables. They would have kind of understood, yes, we get it, something lost, celebrate, let's be found. This is really where the scandal starts to set in. This is the one where they would have had all these kinds of objections. So 15, verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, for us, not a huge deal. Okay? When the Pharisees heard this, they would have just lost their mind. Because what's really happening, the, the father could have bestowed his blessing. He could have bestowed his inheritance onto the younger son, which would have been a third of everything the father owned because the older brother, the eldest son, would have received two-thirds share. Okay, so older gets two-thirds, younger gets one-third. The father could have seen fit at any point to bestow this inheritance on to his son. But really, this, what, what's so scandalous is that there's this, there's this demand, there's this posture from the younger son that says, give me what I want. Give me what's coming to me. When what, what, the, the, the time that this would have typically been done in this day and age was at the father's passing. They would have gathered and divided, and much like the passing and looking at a will, this would have been the appropriate cultural time to say this. And so really what the Pharisees are hearing from this young son to his father is, I wish you were dead so I can get what's coming to me. Now, the Pharisees in this context, what they're expecting the father to do is they're expecting the father to bring the son into public and to beat him. Like, that's what the Pharisees are like, okay, man, that, that, that boy's about to get a whooping. I think it's what we say, a whooping. Do we pronounce the H or is it just whooping? I'm looking at you, Jerry. Jerry Jerry's smiling. Um, that, that's, what, that's what the Pharisees, like, they're, okay, he just did this. That's like some crazy disrespect, like unheard of. And so we see, continuing in verse 12, that the father drags his son into public and beats him. No, it's not what we see. He's, it, Jesus says he divided his property between them. He just does it. Like no shaming, no beating, nothing. And so the Pharisees are already hearing this, and they're like, 
that, that, no, that doesn't, that doesn't really make sense. One, one commentator says about this posture of the younger son, it is bad and the beginning of worse when men look upon God's gifts as debts owed. But this is the posture of the son. And so we see in verse 13, not only does the, does, is there disrespect towards the father in the, in the asking of the inheritance, but we see in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, as I was saying before, the inheritance that he would have received, it's not like he just gets this lump sum of cash and it's like, all right, there you go. He would have been given servants. He would have been given livestock. He may be given property. There may have been gems or jewels that he was given. And yet we see here, not many days later, it's really conveying this idea of it's like a fire sale, like everything must go, okay? So he's given this inheritance that the father is, has saved for him for his entire life to this point, and he's just trying to liquidate it as fast as he can. Yet again, signs of disrespect. He's not even trying to get the best bang for his buck. He's just trying to get the most bucks possible. And then it says in verse 13 that he takes a journey into a far country. He wants to get as far from his father's reach and influence as possible. And it's at this point that culturally, again, what would have happened because of the level of disrespect, the father would have actually gathered the family and they would have held a funeral for this man. Now, he's not actually dying, though it may have been kind of proactively maybe mourning that, but really it's such a significant insult that there should have been complete loss of relationship here. And so they would literally have held a funeral at this point for the son. And he goes off into a far country. And there he, it says, squandered his property in reckless living. We'll see in verse 30 when we see the elder son's accusations towards his father about how his younger brother was responding that some of that squandering and reckless living included prostitution. And so there's, there's this total, utter disregard for his relationship and respect to his father. There's total, utter disregard towards the gift that he has been given. In verse 14 it says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we know because of the sovereignty of God, famine and those kinds of things do not happen by chance. And so God in this moment provides a famine so that the son would be in need. Verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This idea, again, Pharisees are hearing this. Not only did he, did he sell himself into slavery to Gentiles, likely, because, again, it's a far-off country, which would have been seen as a sign of humiliation, but now he is in slavery to Gentiles in feeding and working with unclean animals. So again, the Pharisees are hearing all of this, and they're like, this, this boy at this point is cursed. Like that's, it would have been so repugnant 
that all of these things lining up would have amounted to a curse. And there's this beautiful moment in verse 17 where it says, but when he came to himself, when he woke up, when he really looked around at his settings, which for me I'm reminded of the story, if you're familiar with it, from Daniel 4 of Nebuchadnezzar, after he has been cursed with these seven periods of time, most scholars say seven years of insanity where he's walking around like an animal grazing and eating grass, it says after those periods of time, his sanity and reason returned and was restored to him. That's what this reminds me of. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants? Notice, he's not even recognizing, like, his sonship at this point. He's recognizing the only thing that I'd be even considered to be worthy of would be servanthood. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. We see in verses 18 and 19 here that there's a, 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 a rehearsal, if you will. I don't know if you guys have been in a situation where you're about to go make amends, but it, I know for me personally, it's very common that I start to, I kind of get the script in my head, Rob, you kind of know what I'm talking about? Rob's like, no, he's like, yeah, I've had to, Rita's like nudging him a little bit, right? Like we, we, we kind of go through this process and we, we got to make sure we get all the ducks in a row. We got to make sure we get everything covered. And so there's, there's a threefold apology. There's three parts here that we see. The first in verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's part one. Part two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And finally, the third prong of the apology, if you will, treat me as one of your hired servants. And then in verse 20, he arose, he gets up, and came to his father. Now, this is, this is the time where, again, the Pharisees are like, he's been disrespectful, they've held a funeral for him, he's just like throwing his life away, now he's a slave and dealing with unclean animals, like, there's, there's so much shame in this moment that then when, when, as we see in verse 20, he rises and comes back to his father while he was still a long way off, what the Pharisees, again, are expecting to hear and anticipating their father to react is this kind of, I don't have a chair here, but it's kind of like he's on his front porch, he's got his, his feet kind of propped up, and he's just looking at him. And there's this intended, expected walk of shame. He's going he's, he's gonna to have to come through the entire village, and he's going to have to bear all of the shame that he tried to ascribe to me as his father. All of the disrespect. That would have been what's appropriate. And yet we see here in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him. Again, looking at the cultural context, it can be easy to miss the significance of this. And so, the, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that he felt compassion for him. There was no sense of duty or sense of obligation 
His, again, his cultural duty would have been to shame and embarrass his son and publicly beat him, and yet it says that his only response, what drives him to run and chase after son is what? Compassion. And in that culture, it would have been incredibly disrespectful for a man to run, especially a landowning man, which we see that he was. Why is that? Because the, the attire that they had, they would have these robes, and it was seen as inappropriate for a man's ankles to be exposed. I don't know if you ever tried to run with a robe on, but it, like, there's no way, like, you're not like doing the shuffle and like getting anywhere quick and keeping your ankles covered, right? It's not possible. And so he would have literally just sprinted and taken off, and there's this image. Think about this for a moment. The son is expected to walk all the way up to the father in humiliation, and yet the father accepts humiliation to go and protect his son. It says he embraced him and kissed him. That idea of embraced him, if you remember the Genesis series we went through, there was this the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau was deceived by Jacob out of his birthright. Years, decades go by. Jacob's got a family. Esau's got a family. But then there's this moment in Genesis 33 where Jacob finds out that Esau's like looking for him. And Jacob's like, oh man, I, like he's trying to avoid, he's trying to get away. He doesn't want to get punished. He thinks Esau's here to kill him. And what this idea of embraced him, the literal translation is fell on his neck. This is exactly how Esau responded to seeing Jacob in Genesis 33, where Jacob expected and anticipated to be killed, to be shamed, to be humiliated, Esau arrives and falls on his neck and embraces him. Verse 21, we're picking up. So father runs, embraces, and kisses. In verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, that's part one, remember, three-pronged three, three confession. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Part two, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, and yet one of the most beautiful instances we see in this passage at the beginning of verse 22 is the word, but. The son can't even get his entire confession out. This part, the third part, was that he's, he's inviting the father to treat him as a hired servant, but the father cuts him off. He doesn't even let him get there. What does he do? The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Again, looking at what this meant culturally, the best robe in the building would have been his own robe. So he said, go get my robe as leader and head of the house, we're going to put that robe on him to cover his shame. This is kind of the, the image, this idea we have of what we call theologically imputed righteousness. It's a covering of, so this son would have been, maybe he's naked, maybe he's clothed. If he's clothed, he's got some stanky clothes on because he's taking care of pigs, right? Like this is not a good presentation. This is like Jared... COVID 2020, long beard before haircut. Like it's that, like that's what we're talking about. Maybe a little bit worse than that, hopefully. 
But that's, that's the presentation, and yet the Father says, take that robe, and we're going to cover his shame. The ring likely would have been this idea of a signet ring. It may or may not have had an actual family seal on it, but what it denotes is this idea of ownership to the point where this son can now make business dealings on my behalf, almost like an ambassador or an emissary. So this isn't just like, hey, I'm going to cover you up, but like, no, you're, you're like back in the fold. Like you're in the family again. Like you're my son. You can speak on my back. That's crazy. Again, Pharisees are hearing this, and they're like, you're supposed to publicly beat the snot out of your son. Like, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. The best we've come up with for how to interact socially, Jesus is blowing it out the water. It's kind of, rem- it's kind of reminiscent of John 4 with the woman at the well, right? Woman's like, you're not supposed to talk to me. You're a man, you're a Jew, you're a teacher. Like, I'm here to try to get away and hide from people. And Jesus is like, I know that like, you guys think you know how to like, do relationship and what that looks like, but I'm kind of here to blow up all your cultural understanding. In the name of the gospel. What I ultimately always intended. So, he's given a robe, he's given a ring, and I love that he's given shoes. Again, these are details that can be really easy to pass over, but the significance of the shoes, if you think about his threefold, um, his threefold apology, the last part was to be treated as a hired servant. Well, slaves and servants in that day were not given shoes to wear. And so not only is his shame covered, not only is he back in the fold and family, but he is not allowed to be identified as a servant or slave. Verse 23, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. Again, going back to the funeral that they would have held for him. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So this idea would have connected really well with all of the sinners and the tax collectors that were right around because they understood their shame really well. It made a lot of sense. And they were able to connect with this idea of grace and forgiveness better than those who were representative of the elder son who never left the father to begin with. And yet, Jesus desires relationship and repentance from them as well as we see in verse 25. And it's really not easy to sing a bunch of songs and then come up here and talk for 30 minutes. Now his older son was in the field, working, honoring, respecting, being obedient. And as he came near and drew to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. This, again, is echoing the other party that's listening that these parables are intended for. These men are literally over here seething at how 
ridiculous Jesus is being associating with sinners and tax collectors offering forgiveness when none should be applied. He says they were angry. He was angry. And his father came out and entreated him. Again, culturally, should not have done that. Again, this is kind of the equivalent of like son coming down, bearing all of his shame for disrespect. It would have been disrespectful for an older son when his father is hosting a party to go and sulk in the corner. Like that would have brought shame to the father and to the family as a whole. And so again, drag out, publicly beat in order to restore shame. Or in order to remove shame, rather. And yet it says, again, the father initiates. His father came out and entreated him. But he, verse 29, answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I wonder if this is reminiscent of the older son's posture. Seeing God's gifts as things that I am entitled to. But when this son of yours, not brother of mine, so we see even there's a separateness and a disownership there, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That verse echoing the old hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, yet now I see. The things that are lost cannot go and find their way. That's what this parable is saying. The parable of the sheep, the parable of the coin, and the parable of the son. They had to be pursued. They could not find their way home in and of themselves. And this is where, for me, church, are we reminded of how unbelievably ridiculous the gospel really is? Are we trying to get rid of our shame and clothe ourselves or are we resting in the fact that we already have a cloak of righteousness draped over our shoulders we already have a signet ring placed on our hand we already have shoes on our feet it's already done we're invited to come and rest to not come and labor not come and work come and rest father goes beyond what are socially acceptable expectations and he takes on his own children's shame. This again, the message of the gospel. The only thing that we bring to our story of redemption is the sin that has made it necessary. The only thing we bring is the wandering. The only thing we bring is the disrespect and the shame. And studying for this, I was just 
reminded of this idea. God did not come as a deity who was looking for servants. He came as a father looking for and rescuing his sons and his daughters. That's the gospel. That's what's too freaking unbelievable for these Pharisees who have tried to earn it for so long, who have tried to deserve it, who have been obedient, can't get it. The invitation in here as we gather is not to come in and put on a face and try to be an elder son. And if you are one, the invitation here is to come and repent. But all of us, in some way, shape, or form, if you are a believer this morning, you did bring something to your salvation. It was not you walking an aisle and praying a prayer. The only thing you brought to this salvation was your sin. And Jesus did all the rest. In closing, <clears throat> I wanted to read. Um, I wanted to read something to you guys. This is written by a woman named Melinda Reinecke, and it's essentially the parable of the prodigal son, rephrased and reframed in a different context. The story is called "The Prince and the Dragon." I do not own rights to this. I did not write this, and so I want to give credit where credit is due. It will take me a few moments to read it, and so I just invite you, if you are already at your limit and are ready to leave, you can do so now. Otherwise, if you stay here, that's on you. <clears throat> and I'll try to get through without crying, but I probably won't, so you guys can just deal with my tears. <clears throat> Listen to this story in light of the truth and the gospel that we just heard Jesus himself speak to sinners, tax collectors, and Pharisees. There was once a great and noble king whose land was terrorized by a crafty dragon. Like a massive bird of prey, the scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with his fiery breath. Hapless victims ran from their burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. Those devoured instantly were deemed more fortunate than those carried back to the dragon's lair to be devoured at leisure. The king led his sons and knights in many valiant battles against the serpent. Each time they wounded the dragon, and he retreated to his hidden lair deep in the mountains. While he healed, the kingdom would be at peace for a time. Take courage, the king told his people. One day, the dragon will be slain. Riding alone in the forest during a period of calm, one of the king's sons heard his name purred low and soft. In the shadows of the ferns and trees curled among the boulders lay the dragon. The creature's heavy-lidded eyes fastened on the prince and the reptilian mouth stretched into a friendly smile. Don't be alarmed, said the dragon, as gray wisps of smoke rose lazily from his nostrils. I am not what your father thinks. What are you then, asked the prince, warily drawing his sword as he kept his fearful horse from bolting by pulling on the rein. I am pleasure, said the dragon. Ride on my back and you will experience more than you ever imagined. Come now, I have no harmful intentions. I seek a friend, someone to share flights with me. 
Have you never dreamed of flying, never longed to soar in the clouds? The sunlight glistened with an iridescent sheen on the dragon's metallic green scales. Bring your sword for security if you wish, but I give you my word that no harm will come to you. Visions of soaring high above the forested hills drew the prince hesitantly from his horse. The dragon unfurled one great webbed wing to serve as a ramp to his ridged back. Between the spiny projections, the prince found a secure seat. Then the creature's powerful wings snapped twice and launched them into the sky. Once aloft, the dragon wafted effortlessly on the wind stream. The prince's apprehension melted into awe and exhilaration. And from then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly. For how could he tell his father, brothers, or the knights that he had befriended the enemy? The prince felt separate from them all. Their concerns were no longer his concerns. Even when he wasn't with the dragon, he spent less time with those he loved and more time alone. The skin on the prince's legs became calloused from gripping the ridged back of the dragon, and his hands grew rough and hardened. He began wearing gloves to hide the malady. After many nights of riding, he discovered scales growing on the backs of his hands as well. And with dread, he realized his fate were he to continue, and so he resolved to turn no more to the dragon. But after a fortnight, he again sought out the dragon, having been tortured with desire. And so it transpired many times over, no matter what his determination, the prince eventually found himself pulled back, as if by cords of an invisible web. Silently, patiently, the dragon always waited. One cold moonless night into their excursion became a foray against a sleeping village. Torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils, the dragon roared with delight when terrified victims fled from their burning homes. Swooping in, the serpent belched again and flames engulfed the cluster of screaming villagers. The prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the carnage, but the agonized screams and smell of burning flesh assailed him. The dragon's long neck snaked and spasmed as he crunched bone and devoured his roasted prey. The prince retched and clung miserably to his spiny perch. In the pre-dawn hours when the prince crept back from his dragon trysts, the road outside his father's castle usually remained empty, but not tonight. Terrified refugees streamed into the protective walls of the castle. The prince walked among bedraggled women carrying wailing children with gashes from the dragon's talons. Some victims, too badly wounded or burned to walk, were brought in on carts or dragged on makeshift pallets. The prince's heart was torn. Their pain brought tears to his eyes and shame to his soul. What have I become, he asked himself. At that moment, he wanted even more desperately to be freed of the dragon. Perhaps his father and all his wisdom could help. But the prince feared that the truth would make him abhorrent in his father's sight. Surely he would be disowned, exiled, or perhaps even condemned to death. The castle bustled with frantic activity to care for the refugees thronged in the courtyard. The prince attempted to slip through the crowd to close himself in his chambers, but some of the survivors stared and pointed toward him. He was there, one woman cried out. I saw him on the back of the dragon. Others nodded their head in angry agreement. Horrified, the prince saw his father, the king, was in the courtyard holding a bleeding child in his arms. The king's face mirrored the agony of his people as his eyes found the prince's. 
The son fled, hoping to escape into the night, but the guards apprehended him as if he were a common thief. They brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on the throne. The people on every side railed against the prince. Banish him, he heard one of his own brothers angrily cry out. Flay him, burn him alive, other voices shouted. As the king rose from his throne, bloodstains from the wounded shone darkly on his royal robes. The crowd fell silent in expectation of his decree. The prince, who could not bear to look into his father's face, stared at the flagstones of the floor. <clears throat> Take off your gloves and your tunic, the king commanded. The prince obeyed slowly, dreading to have his metamorphosis uncovered before the kingdom. Was his shame not already great enough? He had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Sounds of revulsion rippled through the crowd at the sight of the prince's thick, scaled skin and the ridge growing along his spine. The king strode towards his son, and the prince steeled himself, fully expecting a backhanded blow, even though he had never been struck so by his father. Instead, his father embraced him and wept as he held him tightly. In shocked disbelief, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder. Do you wish to be freed of the dragon, my son? The prince answered in despair, I've wished it many times, but there is no hope for me. Not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the serpent alone. Father, I'm no longer your son. I am half beast, sobbed the prince. But his father replied, my blood runs in your veins. My nobility has always been stamped deep within your soul, and nothing can take that away from you. With his face still hidden tearfully in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowds, the dragon is crafty. Some fall victim to his wiles and some to his violence. There will be mercy for all who wish to be free. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. To his amazement, he recognized an older brother, one who had been lauded throughout the kingdom for his onslaughts against the dragon in battle and for his many good deeds. Others came, some weeping, others hanging their heads in shame. The sister, who was known for her beautiful singing, came, tearfully removing her slippers to reveal spiked scales on her feet. And the king embraced them all. This is our most powerful weapon against the dragon, he announced. Truth. No more hidden flights. Alone, you cannot resist him. Together you will prevail, for you draw strength from one another. Those of you who think yourselves immune to the serpent's wiles, beware, lest you be the next to fall. Those ensnared, you must desire freedom more than the dragon's flight. The struggle will be long and fierce. Over time, you will choose more often against the dragon than for him, until finally you go to him no more. 
Will the scales then be gone as well? Asked the sister, looking at her bared feet. No, my child, the king answered gently. But in time they will fade. And one day, when the dragon is finally slain, all traces of scales will disappear. Death to the dragon, someone yelled from the crowd, and a great cheer rose up in chorus. Death to the dragon, long live the king. Father, my hope and my prayer is that this church would be a place that gathers recognizing that we all bear sin and shame. Anyone who comes in here professing triumph or any type of perfection over sin is hiding. We need truth. We need to be reminded of the goodness of you as our Father. You are not a Father who backhands us or who humiliates us or embarrasses us or shames us, but you run to us and you cover us. As the Father took on shame and ran through the village because he was moved with compassion for his Son, so you move towards us. Let that be the truth that gives us the freedom to come in here and talk and confess and be honest of our shame and our sin and not be like the older brother, the Pharisee, to the side who sits and condemns and judges, but that we would come here and at the foot of the cross recognize that the ground is level here, that there is no tears of a good Christian. There is no levels to be gained or ranked, but we are all wretched and only covered by your incredible and immense grace that we cannot earn or deserve, but is gifted to us freely and unendingly. May that be a gospel that transforms parents, children, husbands, wives, May that be a truth that goes beyond these four walls, a hope and a peace and a joy at recognizing our own forgiveness and what it costs you and how we are invited into freedom and celebration and rejoicing over the forgiveness of our sins this morning. You are a good, good father to us. We are grateful for you this morning. We ask that you remind us of these things as we leave here. And until we gather again, may you keep us in your truth. We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen. By way of benediction, if you guys will stand, I'm going to be reading what I read in our time of worship this morning. This is Luke 11, starting in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. May we all be blessed. I hope you guys have a great week, and we look forward to seeing you either Wednesday or here next Sunday morning.